If you would grab your Bibles and turn to Luke 17, we'll be in verses 11 to 19 this morning. An out-of-work executive was on his way to his third and final interview with a very prestigious, prominent company. He had been out of work for a long time. His previous company had laid people off, and he was desperate. And he wanted so badly to work for this company. He had, he'd made it through the first two interviews, and he just had this last one to go. And if he did well in this interview, he would get this job. And as he turned his car onto the city block where this company's high-rise office building was, he saw no parking places anywhere. And so he began to slowly circle the block, continue to look for parking places. And with each trip around the block, he, he glanced down at the clock in his car and saw the minutes were ticking away. And he knew if he was late to this appointment, he would never get the job. He became desperate. He, he was not a religious man at all, but he figured if ever there was a time to pray to God, this would be it. And so as he's driving around the block searching, he, he said, Lord, uh, if you'll give me a parking space, I promise I'll go to church every Sunday. I promise I'll give money to the church. I promise I'll even give up golf on the weekends to spend more time with my family. Amen. And as he turned the corner, there was an empty spot right in front of him. And he whipped his car into it. And as he did, he glanced up and said, never mind, I found one. <laughs> you see, now that's... That's how a lot of people treat God. When things go bad, they're quick to blame him. But when things go good, they never give him thanks. Today we come to a passage in Luke 17 that is probably familiar to you if you've been in church at all about how Jesus did something so marvelous, so miraculous for 10 men and how only one of them came back to give him thanks. The other nine never did. Let's read these verses, and then we'll take a few minutes to go through and explore them a little bit before we have communion. Luke seventeen eleven. Now it happened as Jesus went to Jerusalem, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, he was met by ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when Jesus saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God. And fell down on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. There's far more taking place in these verses than 
first meets the eye. Usually, the only takeaway that you get from a sermon on this passage is that the pastor will basically boil it all down to saying, are you one of the nine who failed to give God thanks, or are you the one who returned to give him thanks? And that's certainly a valid discussion and focus, and I'll mention that briefly this morning, but I would submit to you that there's far more truth lying here before us than just that one thought. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal that truth to us in these few minutes this morning. Uh, I really love the small details in the Bible. The, the, The verses or the phrases or the words that seem boring to most people, and they tend to skip over and move on to the next one. You know, those lists of so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he begat so-and-so. Most people just turn the page and go, man, come on. I love the simple, seemingly boring things in the Bible because I know that they're in there on purpose. <clears throat> and so it's, the, the burden is on me to examine those things and say, why in the world did God include this? It seems pointless, but I know it's not. Verse 11 seems like a pretty boring statement, but actually it reveals something so telling, so uh, beautiful about the love of our Savior. Look at it again. Verse 11, now it happened as Jesus went to Jerusalem. He passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Now, Samaria was the place where all the outcasts lived. They were a mixed breed, and we'll get more into this as we continue through our, our, our Bible study, through the Bible, as we get into the, um, the exile and some of the people who um, left and some who stayed and uh, the, the foreign enemies who came into Samaria and began to mix with those people. That's where all that came from. But Samaritans were, in the eyes of Jews, they were not just second-class citizens, they were non-existent citizens. If a Jew was walking down the street and a Samaritan uh, was being robbed or, or beaten up or a Samaritan was lying there in desperate need, the Jew would not only not help him, he would cross to the other side of the street and walk by to get as far away from him as he could. Jews would not speak to Samaritans. They had no dealings with Samaritans at all. As a matter of fact, the Jew would not even allow the dust from Samaria to get on the bottom of his sandals. They would not step one foot across the line into Samaria. They hated the Samarians. Whenever they traveled north or south in that area, I brought a map here. Put that up and take a look at this. I've circled Samaria for you right there in the middle. And whenever they would travel north and south in that area, they would always take the long route around Samaria. They'd either take the, the, the green route to the west or the red route around to the east. They would never walk that, right, that, that white path through Samaria. This was just how Jews saw things. They taught their children to hate Samaritans. They said, if you see a Samaritan drowning, don't save him. This was the level of animosity that the Jews had towards Samaritans. 
Um, I wonder if there is anybody or any group in your life that you intentionally ignore. That person at work who just seems so weird and different from you. Um, That student at school who everybody makes fun of. Those Christians who worship different than you do. Isn't it a shame that even today we find ourselves sometimes treating other people like Samaritans? One of the things I love about Jesus is that he broke through all the caste systems of the day. He, he broke through all the social status levels. He, he broke through all the religious boundaries and divisions that had been set up. And by doing so, he was saying, let me show you how to love people. Jesus was accused again and again of being a friend of sinners. He had dinners with people who were notorious sinners and thieves and robbers like Zacchaeus, who ripped off thousands of people. Jesus had dinner with him. Jesus had dinner with prostitutes. You see, and there, there are people in this world that you and I will never be able to reach with the gospel unless we are willing to, first of all, confess our stereotypes and our prejudices and then say, God, give me a heart of love like Christ had, that I would see everybody as valuable in your sight, that I would not hold anybody in contempt, that I would not keep any person or any group at arm's length. I'm not saying you go and become one of them. I'm not saying you have to become a drunkard to reach alcoholics. No, 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 not at all. But I think Christians have taken this idea of being separate from the world too far. And you know what? I think we spend most of our lives safely huddled in this building and not so much time out there getting our hands dirty. The thing I love about verse 11 here is that it tells us that Jesus went through the midst, the middle of Samaria. This is not a small detail. This is huge. You and I read this and go, so what? This is making a profound statement. And when he and his disciples reached that that crossroads there outside of Samaria, I have no doubt that just out of habit, his disciples turned to the side road and started walking. Jesus said, no, 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 fellas, come on. We're going straight through. Can you imagine the looks? There must have been looks shooting at each other. These guys were always goofing off, always fighting about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. A bunch of knuckleheads, all of them. They must have looked at each other and said, what? We're going through Samaria. We can't do that. We're Jews. I love the fact that this verse in such a subtle way reveals to us the heart of Jesus. He did the same thing in John 4. The Bible tells us that he, I love the King James in this. It says he must need go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria that time because there was, a, there was an appointment that had been put on the calendar before the world was created that God had an appointment with a, with a, a, a battered down, beaten down, despondent little woman in Samaria. He had an appointment with her that day in Samaria to change her life. 
And he said to his guys, I must need to go through Samaria. And here in Luke 17, we're told that as he did, these ten men with leprosy stood afar off. And when they saw Jesus, they cried out that he would have mercy on them. It's difficult for us in our day and age of modern medicine to really appreciate the condition that these men were in. Leprosy is a horrible disease. It was especially so back then. There was no cure for leprosy. If you got it, you would die of it. It got worse and worse and worse. And as it got worse, your skin was covered in sores. Toes and fingers would fall off your body eventually. It was a, it was a horrible, debilitating disease. And if you got it, you had to leave your home and your family forever. You were forced to live outside the city with other lepers. You were never allowed to hug your children or grandchildren again. You were never allowed to worship with your brothers and sisters again. You were never allowed to even come close to another person who did not have leprosy. In fact, if someone wandered too close to you, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean. Imagine the humiliation of living like that, of having to announce your filth to everyone everywhere you went. I'm unclean. I'm filthy. Stay away from me. You know, I don't have time to focus on this, but the truth is we can identify more with that than we may realize. Before Christ came through our village and met us, every one of us, was ruined by sin. And all of us, if the truth be told, should have gone through life saying, unclean, unclean. What a crushing, demoralizing way of life this must have been for these poor people. Now, it's interesting, those 10 lepers, when they saw Jesus, they knew who he was. There was no social media. There were no billboards. There was no television. They knew, though, who he was. And they had heard, obviously, that he was the one who could cure leprosy. And they knew this was their moment. Jesus was passing by. This was their chance. Boy, how often you and I miss those opportunities. You're sitting in a service like this, or, or whatever the case may be, God brings a Bible verse to, to you or has someone say something to you. It's your moment when Jesus is passing by. It's your opportunity to cry out to him for help, and we just blow it off. We miss it. They had heard about Jesus. They knew who he was, and as he came towards them, they stood at the required distance away. It says they stood afar off. You understand why that has meaning now? And as Jesus walked by, they yelled out to him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. You can feel the pain in their cry. You can hear the desperation in their voice. Nothing, nothing could have stopped these men from crying out to Jesus. Everything was on the line for them. They wanted so desperately to get their life back, and they knew there was nothing they could do to fix their condition. 
Jesus was the only one who could heal them. And when they had their moment, they screamed out to him. They didn't care what people thought. They were desperate for healing. It's like the the man who was sick and the, the four friends took him to Jesus in the house, and the house was crowded. They couldn't get in to bring him before Jesus, so they went up on the the flat roof, and they tore a hole through the roof and lowered the man down to Jesus on a mat with ropes. That's desperation. That's the kind of desperation that Jesus will honor. Folks, I want to tell you, when you get that desperate for Jesus... When you've tried every other thing to fix your situation and nothing has worked. When you've reached the place, though, that you know that he is the only one who can heal you. And you cry out to him for mercy. I want you to know he will hear you and he will see you. Look at what verse 14 says. I love this one word. When Jesus saw them. He saw them. Do you understand? Everywhere Jesus traveled, he was mobbed by people. There were people pressing in on him all the time, trying to push through the crowd to reach him, just like the woman with the issue of blood who fought her way through the crowd and reached out and grabbed the hem of his garment. People all the time were clamoring around him. Luke tells us in one place there were so many thousands of people fighting to get to Jesus that they were trampling on one another. And yet with all those people, with all those needs, with all that noise, Jesus saw them. He saw them. He didn't say, I have no time for this. You have no idea how tired I am. You have no idea the schedule I have. He saw them. That statement ought to grip us. It ought to amaze us. These men were used to people avoiding them. They they were used to people ignoring their cries for help. They were used to being the unheard, unseen members of society. But it says Jesus saw them. Hey, I want you to know, even when you're feeling like an outcast, when, when you're feeling unheard and unloved, when you're in a situation that no human can solve, when it feels like no one else sees your pain, Jesus sees you. He sees you right now, wherever you are, whatever burden you're carrying, whatever situation you are in, he sees you. Others may look right past you, but Jesus sees you right where you are. no matter what kind of leprosy might be destroying your life today. You need to know that if you cry out to him, he will see you, he will hear you, and he will answer you. Look at the next part of verse 14. So when Jesus saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. Uh, This could not have been the words they were hoping to hear. Jesus didn't say, you're healed. He didn't say, be well, be whole. He simply told them to go and show themselves to the priest. Again, it's another statement that means nothing to us unless we put in effort to understand 
what he's talking about. It's another reason why, as we're going through the Bible on Sundays, I've told you it's vital for us to understand the Old Testament. Here's an example right here. What's Jesus talking about? Well, this goes all the way back to Leviticus 13 and 14, where God put laws in place for people who had leprosy. And it's said that if they were healed, if God healed them, they were required by law to go to the priests, show themselves to the priests. The priests would examine them. He would then offer a special offering for them from the, the ashes of the red heifer. He would make a special offering, and he would, if you will, give a certificate of health kind of thing to them and say, you are now legally allowed to go back to your life. But that was only if the person had been healed. What's strange about this is these 10 lepers here, they had not been healed yet, but Jesus told them to go to the priest anyway. I wonder if when Jesus said, go show yourselves to the priest, I wonder if they looked down at themselves and and they saw the leprosy still there, the, the missing fingers and toes, and they thought, we're supposed to go to the temple in Jerusalem like this? We won't get past the city gates, never mind all the way to the temple. I wonder if they had those thoughts. Listen, I want to tell you, God often God often asks you to step out in obedience before you have the answer. God often asks you to recognize your healing before your healing has come. Hebrews tells us faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By faith, we can hold invisible evidence in our hands and we can say this is going to happen. God has promised this. Every promise in God's word, you can do that too whether it looks like it is going to happen or not. God does this throughout the Bible. He asks us to obey before the answer comes. When Moses was at the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was bearing down behind him, they were trapped. God said, Moses, hold out your rod over the sea. What now? There surely must be a better plan. God said, hold out your rod over the sea. And when Moses obeyed, the miracle came. When Joshua and the people were at the edge of the flooded Jordan River, we've all seen TV footage of floods that sweep cars and houses away. There they were standing at the banks of this river, tree trunks being swept past them. God said, tell the priests and the Levites to take up the ark and walk into the river. And when the soles of their sandals touch the water, I will stop the water. Are you kidding me? Hey, can we just be real for a second? Those priests and Levites were not so holy that they were walking towards the water that day, whistling Yankee Doodle Dandy. I guarantee you their hearts were beating out of their chest. As they held that ark and they took one step and another step and they could hear the water. 
raging past. And that one final step when they shifted their weight into the water and there was no turning back. And the minute the sole of their, their sandal touched the water, God dried up the river and backed it up in a heap. God wants us to step out in faith and obedience before we see the miracle. Look at the rest of verse 14. So when Jesus saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, as they went, they were cleansed. I missed this for years. I missed it for years. I've read it who knows how many times. And those three words never stood out to me before. But it's incredible. Those 10 men, say what you want about them. Those 10 men turned and started doing what Jesus told them to do, even though things didn't look any better. They had not seen the answer to their prayer yet, but they went anyway. They had not experienced the healing that they hoped for, but they went anyway. They obeyed before they saw the answer. Hey, so often we want God to do it so we can go, but God wants us to go so he can do it. You've been praying, Lord, set everything in order in my life so I can obey you. Lord, fix me so you can use me. Lord, heal me so, you can, so I can serve you. But God says, no, I'm not going to answer you so you can go. I'm going to answer you as you go. This is the sequence we always see in the Bible. First, we obey. Then God moves. What is the one thing God is looking for? Faith. Faith. I'm so thankful for our team of elders. We have some men on there whose faith dwarfs mine. I'm embarrassed to say that, but it's the truth. I'm the one usually sitting there going through a list of all the technical details and all the this and that. We've got to get this in place. And every once in a while, one of them will say, we just need to step out and do this. Yeah, but we don't have the resources. Too bad. Let's do it. Quit talking. Let's do it. Listen, there will be times in your life when it may not look like God is at work. Keep walking anyway. There may be times when Things don't look good right now, but keep on walking. You may be in pain, but keep on walking. You may be limping, but keep on walking. You might be brokenhearted, but keep on walking. Anybody can keep walking when everything is going well. Anybody. But we've been called to keep on walking when hell itself comes against us. Because we are people who walk by faith, not by sight. We are people who trust in the God who leads us, not in the circumstances that surround us. We don't have to have all the answers before we believe. We don't have to see the destination before we set out. God doesn't have to prove himself before we trust him. Or does he for you? We keep walking in faith and obedience simply because that's what he's told us to do and that's enough for us because we trust him. 
as they went, they were cleansed. Well, finish up quickly, verses 15 and 16. When, when one of them saw that he was healed, it says, he returned. And with a loud voice, he glorified God, fell down on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And I love, it just has to add this on. And he was a Samaritan. Oh, by the way, all the other big religious Jews, they didn't do this. They just went right back to their old system, their old temple, old religious system. One of them realized, you know, I could go to those priests or I can change everything and turn around and go to the priest. Only one of these men expressed true gratitude to the one who had healed him. And as a result, don't miss this, he received a second healing, a healing that none of the other nine received, a healing that far surpassed his physical healing. Look at this, verse 19. And Jesus said to him, Arise and go your way. Your faith has made you whole, or well is the word. Your faith has made you well. You say, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. He'd already been made well. That's why he came back to Jesus. No, no. This is one of those places where our English language really lets us down because we cannot see what's actually going on behind this word, well. This word whole, well, here is the Greek word sozo, S-O-Z-O. It means salvation. It means delivered. It's the same word in Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be sozoed, will be saved. Same word. Jesus isn't saying here, your faith has healed you physically. He's saying your faith has saved you. Because you came back and bowed before me, recognized me as Lord. I am now your Savior. This is so beautiful. All 10 men were healed of leprosy, but only one was saved and made whole. All 10 were healed physically, but only one was healed spiritually. And you know, those are still about the right ratios today. The Bible says broad is the way that leads to destruction and many are on it, but narrow is the way that leads to life and only a few will find it. For the most part, people in the world and even many Christians are only interested in the physical things of this world. They think as long as they've got all that in place, everything will be fine. But you know what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26? He said, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What a question. If you want to be made whole this morning, if you've never been, if you want to be saved It's not enough to go to the temple of the Lord. You have to go to the Lord of the temple. You have to come to the true Savior. Nine were cleansed. Nine were healed. But only one was made whole. If you've never done that today, what more convincing do you need? I tell you in love, without Christ, you're on your way to hell. Happy Sunday. That's the truth. Not by me. I wish I didn't have to say that. I wish I could get up and talk about puppy dogs and cotton candy. But this is the truth. If you have never come to the Lord of the temple, you may go to the temple of the Lord. You may have gone to church your whole life. Doesn't mean a thing. 
without the Lord of the temple. Have you ever come to him like this one man did? Have you ever turned and realized he's the only one who can save you? He's passing by this morning right now. Those of you watching online, he's passing by right now, this Sunday morning, November 27th. Will this be your last opportunity? Don't know. Maybe. Come to him this morning by faith. Fall down before him, as it were. It means humble yourself. Say, Lord, look at me. I'm a mess. I'm destroyed by sin. I need you to make me whole. I need you to save me. For those who have been saved and made whole, can I just ask you the one question that is always asked in this message? Are you the one who lives a life of giving him thanks for what he's done for you? Or are you like the nine who are just going through life, doing the religious rigmarole? Last week we celebrated Thanksgiving, and now as we come to the Lord's table, we need to remember we have a lot to be thankful for. Far more than just taking time around a dinner table or whatever you do to remember our blessings as a nation and how good God has been to us and his abundant provision and all. As saved Christians, followers of Christ, we have so much more to give thanks for. I pray that we will always keep our list of blessings longer than our list of needs. We have a long list of blessings. And as we come to communion now, we're remembering the death that Jesus died in our place. The sacrifice that brought us salvation. And that alone gives us a lifetime of things to be thankful for. As we come to the table this morning, I pray that it would be with hearts of thanksgiving. Saying, Lord, I don't even know where to begin to thank you for what you did for me. But this little symbol that we're doing, this seemingly silly little thing, it has such beautiful meaning. Lord, this, this juice represents your blood that was spilled. This bread represents your body that was broken. Lord, I do this this morning in remembrance of you. And I give you thanks for your goodness to me. Even when I was lost in my sin, I thank you. If you're saved this morning, this is for you. You don't have to be a member of this church. You just need to be a member of the body of Christ. So we invite you, if you're saved, to come and participate in this. Let me remind you also that the bread is in a cup below the juice cup. So in other words, the juice cup has been put down into that second cup, and you'll find the bread underneath. We just do that to make it a little bit easier. Whenever you're ready, we invite you to come to either table at the front and partake of the Lord's Supper. Father, may we be grateful people. Lord, as we pause now and we remember your words to your disciples on that night before you were betrayed and crucified, 
You took the bread and you broke it and you blessed it. And you said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, we're told that you took the cup and you gave it to your disciples and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, my blood that has been poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We come this morning, Lord, remembering your sacrifice. The best that we know how, Lord, we come with hearts overflowing with gratitude. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you for the gift of Christ. Lord, I pray that as we leave here today, we would indeed live lives of gratitude. Lord, even the unsaved world knows the benefits of gratitude. Gratitude journals are all the rage now because they know that people who live a life of gratitude live a better life. So, Lord, make us people of gratitude. I pray that your spirit would just enable us to to live that kind of life, that we would be grateful for, for all the small things. Lord, for a bed to sleep in, a roof over our heads, running water, clothes to wear, a job to go to, a car to drive, a family around us, a few friends we can trust. Lord, we're so blessed, but we're blessed more than anything in Christ. And we thank you for his sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Uh-huh.